Now, well, life on this planet is a, is a curious thing, isn't it? it it's, life's an experience of juxtapositions. Don't you love that word, juxtaposition? I just had to say a big word tonight. Um, I love it because it sounds cool. I don't necessarily know what it means, and so I had to look it up, and here's a, here's a definition I found. Uh, putting people or things together, especially in order to show a contrast or a new relationship between them. Or you could put this another way, uh, the experience of finding opposites together. Uh, and all of our life is an experience in one sense of, uh, of finding juxtapositions, it really is, in this world. Uh, so seeing the beauty of creation side by side with the, with the brokenness of curse. So let's take, you know, let's take the wonders of the Barrier Reef. You can see the wonders and the colours of the Barrier Reef and you just turn a corner and then you see the, uh, the bleaching that's occurring as a result of the pollution that we've put into the seas and the warming of our waters in part because of us as well. And so the, the beauty and the curse just side by side, that juxtaposition. Uh, relationships, I think, are really an example of juxtaposition as well in our experience. You know, the joy of relationships that it, that it can bring for us, joint experiences uh, that bring happiness, so joint experiences of care and love, one with another, only to be reminded in the next instant of the deep hurt of broken relationships uh, that, that those have brought and our part that we might have played in that. And so that juxtaposition that we feel in relationships... In Genesis 1 and 2, we're reminded of the wonder of our world as God made it, aren't we? You know, the, the beauty of our world, the, the, the wonder of life, the complexity and the diversity and the unity and the powerful and majestical work of this powerful and glorious God who's brought all this world into being. But we're reminded again and again, as we've been looking through Roman, uh, sorry, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 during this last two weeks, we're reminded of just how broken our world is, because Genesis 1 and 2 is not our world, is it? We keep on seeing that again and again. In relationships, in the world in which we live, it's broken. Our world is not the paradise God created it to be. It's fractured, it's full of disappointment and curse and grief and suffering side by side with the reminders of the wonder of what it once was, that juxtaposition that we experience in life. As we read through Genesis 1 and 2 and then look at our world, I'm reminded of another song. Last week I talked about a song from my childhood, the vinyl song, and tonight I'm going to share a tape song if you're old enough to remember what those were. Uh, it's a song by the Eurogliders. Uh, Heaven must be there. Well, it's just got to be there. I've never, never seen Eden. I don't want to live in this place. Might not have the same poetic quality of Simon and Garfunkel, I admit that. But it expresses what we so often feel as we look at our world. You know, this is not Eden, is it? This is not what it was meant to be. And in Genesis 3, we're told why our world is the way we experience it. A world under curse. Cursed by God because of our sin. What Genesis 3 will do for us tonight is expose the ugly truth of who we are as men and women. It's not a pleasant thing to look into the mirror that is Genesis 3, to look deep into this mirror and to see ourselves in it. But if we want to make sure we don't bury our heads in the sand, we need to wrestle with the truth about our sin, wrestle with the truth of what we see of ourselves in this mirror that is Genesis 3. So let's pray as we come before this confronting word of God, this vitally important part that we need to understand about ourselves. Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you for this truth that you have given us in your word. We thank you that your word reveals not only who you are, but who we are. And so we pray that as we look at this word and we're confronted with our sin, we pray that that's exactly what would happen. We would be confronted by it, by the reality of how we treated you. And then once again, see the wonder of what you've done in your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the end of chapter 2, we, we, what was painted for us was a wonderful picture, wasn't it, at the end of chapter 2, of a, a very good world, of man and woman equally, wonderfully, image bearers of God in this world, entrusted by God as rulers under him to make this world all that it was created to be. That's what we've seen in chapters 1 and chapter 2. But chapter 3, chapter three verse 1, we're introduced to a sinister character, crafty character, Satan in the form of a serpent, the embodiment of evil, turns up in God's good world, seeking to unravel all the good that God has done. And he comes and speaks words of deception to Eve. In verse 1, he says, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Just posing the question. Satan plants this seed of doubt about the character of God, just twists his words, and Eve responds with a minor correction of sorts to the serpent, but, but even in her response there's a, an exaggeration of the words of God, aren't there? Where she says, we weren't allowed to touch it. That's not what he said. He said you weren't allowed to eat it. That's that subtle twist that she's taking on some of the temptation of the serpent, if you want to put it like that. And with this little chink in the armour, the serpent just outright calls God a liar. In verse 4, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then Eve listens to this lie and swallow this lie, hook, line and sinker. Adam is, actually, have a look in verse 6. Adam's not somewhere else in the garden, just, you know, tending the plants at all. No, 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 he's actually with Eve the whole time while this is happening. You can see that in verse 6. He's listening as his wife is deceived. He's an informed participant in this act of rebellion. He says nothing. And then he takes and he eats. They eat the fruit together of this forbidden tree and the, and the whole wonder and the beauty of what we've seen in Genesis 1 to 2 just begins to unravel in distrust of God and one another. But the question I want to ask and explore now is, well, what, in, what do we learn about sin in this chapter? What exactly is sin as we see expressed in this very first of sins? The first thing we see, the most obvious thing we see, is that sin is disobeying God, isn't it? It's so clear. God gave them one job, one instruction, very clear and very clear consequences. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat it, you'll die. So clear. And this is probably our most basic understanding of sin, isn't it? You know, sin is breaking a law. Sin is disobeying a command, like speeding, which is so hard, so easy to do in orange at 50 k's an hour, isn't it? You know, speeding or lying, just breaking this command. But sin is more than just law-breaking, and we see that in this chapter as well. Sin at the very heart is actually a relational thing. It's not just about a law somewhere out there. It's about our relationship with one another and with God. 
So think for a minute about all that we've learned about the God that we've met in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. What have we learned about God? We've seen that God is a loving God, haven't we? We've seen that God is a generous, giving God. He's a wonderfully generous provider. He gives and gives with astounding generosity and diversity. He saw Adam in his aloneness. And he provided the wonder of relationship in one like him, in the image of God like him. God is relational. He reveals, he speaks. He relates with Adam and Eve in the garden and speaks with them and gives them his good word. He brought Adam to himself in the garden to live and to walk with him and then created Eve Eve there as well to live and walk with him. And we've also seen that God is a powerful God. He simply speaks and it happens. He's the one Adam and Eve are accountable to, answerable to. He can create with a word everything that Adam and Eve sees. But, But how does Satan portray God in the words that he speaks, the lies that he speaks? Well, he makes God out to be an ogre, doesn't he? Not, not a nice green one like you see with Shrek. No, he's not a nice ogre. No, he's a, he's a terrible God. That's the way Satan portrays him, a terrible God. He's a God who's keeping good things from you. He's a God who, who can't be trusted. He doesn't want what's best for you. He doesn't know you. I want you to see in this chapter that sin is just dumb, isn't it? It's just so stupid. Like, God has openly, lovingly revealed himself to Adam and Eve, his character to them, and they think that God can't be trusted. They believe this silly lie of Satan. They think that God is someone to be rejected, someone to be ignored, and whose word is not good. It's ridiculous, given what you've seen of God in Genesis 1 and 2. So Adam and Eve had a choice. Accept the word of God... The God who made them, the God who has shown so clearly that he loves them and provides for them, or accept the word of a serpent that they have only just met, but they don't know, that is making out this God who has given them everything to be not for their good. Like, it's not a hard choice, is it? Surely. In verse 6, I just want to shake Adam and Eve and say, look at what's going on. Can't you see? Don't make this dumb choice. Don't eat that fruit. It's just, don't be so stupid. So can you see how sin at the very core is actually about relationship? It's about their relationship with God. It's about this breakdown of trust. It's a rejection of the good that God has given us. It's a rejection of the good God who loves us. When we sin, we're saying to God, God, I don't trust you. God, I don't like you. God, you you just don't know me. You just don't know what I need. You don't understand me. You don't care about me. That's what we're saying to God as we sin. And that's what Adam and Eve did. Sin is about relationship and a breakdown of that with God. But there's still more to learn about sin in this chapter. There's there's more going on here, so let's keep looking. Have you you ever wondered, why why did God say, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I mean, why that tree? Why couldn't it be, say, a pawpaw tree? I like pawpaw. You know, it's a very tempting fruit to me. Maybe it's not to you. Maybe you think it smells terrible. I like it. Why why not a random tree like a pawpaw tree? So you can't eat the pawpaw. Or maybe this one, a durian tree. If you don't know what the durian tree is... Stinky fruit, all right? I don't, I, don't, I don't want to smell this fruit. Now, if it was that fruit, Adam and Eve wouldn't have eaten it, would they? 
So why not make it that? That would have been a no-brainer, surely. Why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to seek to dethrone God. That's why. It's to seek to take God's place. To have the knowledge of good and evil is to seek to take responsibility for myself so I can decide what's right and wrong for me. God, I don't trust you with that. I trust myself with that. I want that knowledge so I can decide for myself. That's why it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I want the right, I want the knowledge to decide for myself what's right and wrong. That's the case. If it's to dethrone God from that responsibility that he has, that we want, then really sin is treason. That's what it is, isn't it? It's treason. And treason is the highest crime in a kingdom. It says to God, God, get out. Get off the throne because I want to sit there. I want that place. I want to rule. I want your place as ruler. We don't want you here. That's what sin is in this chapter. But there's still more to learn about sin. Let's keep looking. Uh, what else do we learn about sin in this chapter? Sin is to side with Satan. That's what it is. It's to side with Satan. Adam and Eve are given a choice. Trust God or trust Satan. Follow God or follow Satan. Accept the word of God. This good God has given you everything or accept the word of Satan who's making God out to be a liar. That's the choice they got. And they chose Satan. Now, I've used this illustration last year when I was talking about holiness, but we like, we like to think that we're neutral. We like to think we're like Switzerland uh, in World War II. We like to think that we're neutral, neither good nor bad, just a little bit in between. And we can choose either God or we can choose Satan. But we're neutral ourselves. Well, that's actually not what we are. We're either with God or with Satan. There's no in-between. And our sin shows who we've sided with, and we've actually sided with Satan. And we're sided against God. There's only two sides. And in Adam and Eve, we're on Satan's side. That's what our sin shows us. So Adam and Eve, they eat from the tree, they reject their good and loving creator, they side with Satan. But the promised freedom, the promised power that Satan promised them just doesn't quite turn out the way that he promised it would. And as it does, this serpent just sort of slinks away from the whole thing, doesn't he? And leaves Adam and Eve in it. But in that moment, their trust in one another vanishes, doesn't it? You know, Adam and Eve, they're hiding from one another. They're, they're pathetically sewing fig leaves together to cover themselves. There's a breakdown in trust in verse 7. And what's going on is they sow fig leaves and try and cover themselves. It's, it's more than just a breakdown of their trust in terms of the their looks in terms of trusting one another with their physical appearance. Back in chapter 2, their lack of shame in their nakedness is a picture of nothing hidden from one another. It's not just about the physicality of it all. It's actually about trust relationship one with another, complete trust and acceptance. There's nothing to hide from one another, and they trust one another. That's what you get at the end of chapter 2. But here in chapter 3, verse 7, that trust is destroyed. It's replaced by fear of one another and a desire to hide themselves from each other, yes, physically, but also relationally and emotionally. There's things about themselves they don't want the other person to see. Trust is replaced with fear. And do you notice 
Once again, they're alone. They're alone in the garden. Verse 9, God approaches the couple. I'm sure he'd done that a number of times already in this wonderful personal living relationship of Adam and Eve with God until this point because now God approaches them and that relationship is just destroyed by sin. And the reaction of Adam and Eve that we see here are powerful portrayals of the way that we all respond to our own sin. Adam and Eve, what do they do? The first thing they do is they run away from each other but also run away from God. They try and hide from him. They try and flee the scene of the crime and pretend it didn't happen. Uh, and when God confronts Adam in the garden and asks where he is, you know, notice Adam doesn't front up and say, oh, yeah, I ate the tree, really sorry. No, he says, no, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He just covers over the whole thing with just half-truths, doesn't he? He doesn't, doesn't face up to the reality of what he's done. That's what we do, isn't it? We cover over the sin with half-truths and not complete truth. That's exactly what we do. So they cover the depth and the seriousness of their sin. God pushes the points with Adam and asks if he's eaten from the tree. He explicitly commanded that he should not eat from. And Adam replies with this classic blame game, doesn't he, in that verse. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. You know, it wasn't me and she did it first. If, you've ever, you know, if you're a parent, you'll have heard that so many times. And all of us all kids, we've all done it. Let's be honest, we've all done it, haven't we? I feel for your single kids, you know, no siblings, you can't do that with anyone. Well, actually, no, it was you first because you're the only one here. Anyway, sorry, I diverge. It wasn't me, she started. But but did you actually notice in this, um, there's not just a blame of her, Adam's actually blaming God. He's saying, listen, everything was awesome, God, until you put her here. And it just destroys both relationships at once, doesn't it? It's just terrible. This breakdown of trust. And then Eve in turn blames the serpent. Now we laugh at Adam and Eve in one sense. I know I do. I read this and I can't believe you said that, mate. That's just ridiculous. But as we laugh at this verse, we actually need to see that we're laughing at ourselves because this is what we do, isn't it? We're no different in our sin, playing this blame game. And so, and we don't just blame it on each other. We do the same as Adam. We blame God. We say it's his fault after all. If you didn't do this, if you weren't like that, if you didn't allow this to happen, then we wouldn't have a problem. And we do the same thing that Adam and Eve did and blame our God. And we minimise the seriousness of our sin. We justify ourselves at the expense of others. It's no biggie after all. Everybody's doing it. It's okay. All these are ways that we approach. We fail to take responsibility for our treason against God. We do it all. So in Genesis 3, we're confronted with a mirror, aren't we? A mirror where we see ourselves and our own evil, the destructiveness of our sin is exposed for us. And in front of this mirror, we want to look away, don't we? We don't want to see ourselves like this. See, this truth about ourselves, but as we now turn to look at God's response to our sin, we see that we mustn't look away. We mustn't turn aside from this mirror. We need to continue to look hard, even though it's hard work. Because we need to see that this is the most important issue we need to face about ourselves. How does God judge? How does, sorry, how does God the judge respond to our sin? Well, in, in this chapter, God isn't fooled by the sin of Adam and Eve, their excuses. He knows what they've done. 
He knows their sin, he knows their hearts, he knows Adam's heart and he knows Eve's heart and he knows yours too. Have a look at this passage from Jeremiah chapter 12. He says, yet you know me, O Lord. You test me. I'm sorry, you see me and test my thoughts about you. As, as you look at that verse, how does it make you feel? When you know that God knows that about you and knows you that well, your innermost thoughts, he's tests them. It makes me feel squirmy. Does it make you feel squirmy? He knows the secret motives of your heart. So even those, even those Those good things that you do, he actually knows the motives in your heart, the selfish reasons why you do them. Yes, it's mixed up with good motives, but there's bad motives in there too as well, and he knows that. He sees that. You know, those things that remind us of our own evil that we try and hide from other people, those things that we've done, those words that we've said, those thoughts that we've thought. You know, God was there when we said them. God knows what we think. God's seen that terrible things we've done that we hate other people to know. He's seen all that. He knows all that. And with that knowledge, God judges. He punishes justly for our sin. God curses the serpent. He curses the ground. And in that, humanity is cursed. And in this curse, every good and wonderful relationship that was created in Genesis 1 and 2 just is fractured and filled with sorrow and pain and disappointment and grief. The relationship between mankind and the rest of creation is made painful because of the toil that comes as a result of the curse that is on the ground. The relationship between the man and the woman is also fractured in this curse. And we see that in verse 16 in the, in the curse outlined on Eve, where it says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, I know that there's a number of different takes on this verse. Some see it... Um, as a recognition that even in this curse there's a, there's a promise of good relationship, a restoration of that, if you would put it like that. Uh, but I, I don't think that's quite right. I think the best way to understand it, the clearest, clearest way to understand it, is that it's in the context of a curse. This is part of a curse on the woman and effectively on the man as well. The word desire here, yes, it can be positive, but the very next time that word is used is just one chapter later, chapter 4, verse 7, and it's used in a personification of sin and a reference to the way that sin desires to control Cain. It's a negative thing. And I think it's a negative thing in chapter 3 too. See, the rule of Adam was meant to be a good thing, a positive thing for Eve. But now it becomes a source of curse and hurt and rule that brings control and not for her good at all. What was created to be a powerful source of good and companionship turns out to be a source of discord and hurt and difficulty in chapter 3, verse 16. And then God fulfills his promise to Adam and Eve that they would die the day that they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At the end of Genesis 3, God sends them out of the garden, boots them out of the garden, out of his presence. Now, they physically walked out that garden. You could say, okay, they were physically alive. But their relationship with God died that day. They were cut off from relationship with God, booted out of his presence. Instead of receiving blessing from God, they're cursed by God. And since that day, we all die. We all live in this land of curse, of brokenness, of paradise lost. That's our experience. We all face certain death in this world. But even greater than that, when we face that death and come the other side of it, we then face God 
and the judgment we deserve from him, the fulfilment of his anger at the way that we treated him. Unless God does something, that's all we have. What would you say is our biggest issue that our world faces today? What's the biggest issue that the struggle that our world has? Is it, is it climate change? Is it, is it the coronavirus? Um, is it the scourge of domestic violence? Is it the horrific way we might treat one another in war and hatred and injustice? What, what about your own personal difficulties, the biggest problem? Is, it, is your own problem issues at work or at school or at university, whatever it might be? Is it, is it discord at home? Is it, uh, is it health problems that you might have or concerns you might have? Well, Genesis 3 tells us that all these problems, now, I don't want to minimise the significance of them. They are significant. They're big things. But what Genesis 3 tells us is that all these problems are symptoms of a deeper problem that we've got, a more urgent, more pressing, more important problem. That's the problem of sin and the judgment that our world is under and we are under, that we all deserve. All the other problems that we have, as significant as they are, are actually megaphones saying, this world's not right. There's something wrong here. And at the core, it's about our relationship with God that's gone wrong. That's where the rest of it comes from. And this is why the grace of God and the promise of victory are such important things to, to see in this passage. And it's beautiful to see them here. I want, us to take us to that. I, want us to, I want to take us to that now. God's response in this chapter is not just judgment and curse. Sin, uh, God also responds in grace and mercy. The very fact that Adam and Eve walked out the garden alive that day is an act of God's grace, is it not? God was well within his rights to just wind up the whole planet, wind up the whole of creation, say, that's it, all gone, no more. But he didn't do that. Adam and Eve went on to eat through painful toil and curse, yes. They went on to have children, yes, through the cursed experience of childbirth, but life went on as an act of God's grace. Notice also at the end of the chapter, he clothes them. He sees their pathetic attempt to cover their nakedness, and so he sacrifices an animal. He sheds blood because of their sin and covers, their, covers them with garments of skin. He still cares for them. He's still their provider for them. That's an act of, astounding act of grace, given the way that they've, they've treated him. He bars them from the tree of life as an act of grace so that they won't make the second mistake of eating from that tree of life and living forever in this state of cursed, cursedness and, and brokenness. But you've got to ask the question, why didn't God wipe them out? Was it because he had some sort of plan to reverse this sad and sorry mess that we've made of his world? Well, actually, the answer is yes, absolutely. That's why he did this. That's why he, that's why he doesn't just wipe them all out. And we get the first hints of this promise in verse 15 of his plan. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He's talking to the serpent. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so an offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The one who brought this rebellion into the world will be defeated, destroyed. See, we are under God's curse. We are stained by sin. We are slaves to sin. We can't fix this. We can't solve this. We can't make our way back to the garden. We can't get it right with God. We can't pay the penalty for our sin that we all deserve. Our only hope is that God would do something. And that's what he's promising to do in verse 15. And in Jesus, 
we see the fulfilment of that promise. The great serpent crusher has come. The great salvation has been won. Death has been defeated. Satan has been crushed. Jesus, when tempted by Satan, how did he respond? Was he like Adam and Eve? Absolutely not. He trusted God's word. He trusted his father. He did not for a moment waver in unbelief. He rejected the lies of Satan. He obeyed his God. He loved his God, trusted him through the garden and to the cross. And at the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. He crushed Satan's head under his feet. He defeated Satan once for all. He freed us from sin, obtaining forgiveness eternally by taking in himself the penalty that we all deserve. Now have a look at this passage from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In, in that last sentence, can you see the victory that he's won, how he's crushed the serpent's head? And he's triumphed, won the victory. Death doesn't win anymore. The serpent has been crushed. The hold of sin has been broken. But it's only as we recognise the horror of our sin, the way that we treated God, our treason, our siding with Satan instead of him. It's only when we see that that we see the wonder that God would do this and offer it to us as a gift, the gift of eternal life. Adam and Eve, when they, when they were faced with their sin, when they... When God confronted them, they attempted the hospital past the blame. They blamed the God who made them. What we need to do instead is come to our God. Recognise the way that we treated him. Repent. Say, sorry. That was a terrible way for me to treat you. Recognise our inability to make things right. Plead for mercy. And know in Christ we have it. What a great gift. If you haven't done this yet, you haven't accepted what Jesus has done for you, then you need to do it. This is your most pressing and urgent need. Yes, your other problems, they're significant, but they're megaphones saying things aren't right. And you need to get it right with God. Admit your whole part in this terrible drama. We've all, we've all played our part in that, in our rebellion against God. Accept God's offer of forgiveness and eternal relationship despite everything that we've done. What a great thing. Won't you accept his hand of forgiveness and reconciliation? But taking on board the seriousness of our sin doesn't stop there. Those of us, those of us who have bent the knee have a look at this passage from Romans chapter 6. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Does that passage reflect the way that you treat sin? Turning your back on it, fleeing from it, putting it to death, that's another, another way that um, Paul puts it. Or do you still let it reign? Do you still let it rule you? Do, you? do you treat with contempt the price that Jesus paid to set you free from the penalty and power of sin? In much the same way as Adam and Eve did. Do you minimise it? Do you excuse it? Do you blame others for it? Or do you put it to death? 
every time we sin, we, we stand in Adam's shoes. Now, obviously, I'm meaning that metaphorically. I don't think he had shoes. But we're doing the same thing. We're, we're doing what Adam and Eve did. We believe the lie that God doesn't know best and that I do. That God's words can't be trusted. That God is not good. That God is keeping good things from me. Every time we sin, we're believing those lies from Satan. Don't believe those lies. Satan sells you short. God does know what's good for you. He can be trusted. He sent his son to die to show you that even more so. In praise of your God who saved you, who paid the penalty for your sin, who died your death in your place, flee from sin. Put it to death. Hold your tongue. Don't say those words. So those other words that are words of love and care and truth. Turn away from your indifference to others. Turn off that computer. Run away from that sin. Kill it. And look forward to the day when that battle with sin will finally be done.